Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk to the author of a new book that looks at Europe and European issues and hear what they've got to say. In this programme, the author is Elizabeth Gowing, who's written a fascinating and deeply charming book called Travels in Blood and Honey, Becoming a Beekeeper in Kosovo, which gives a very personal insight into life within what many, but not all, see as Europe's newest country. I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book and talking to Elizabeth, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Joining me on the line from over in Pristina in Kosovo is Elizabeth Gowing. Uh, Hi, Elizabeth. Hi there. Thanks very much indeed for sparing the time for the interview. Um, You're the author of Travels in Blood and Honey, Becoming a Beekeeper in Kosovo, uh, in Europe's newest country. Yes, it's very fresh still. Yes, it comes across... uh, I know the place quite well from when I used to work in Sarajevo and I used to drive down there from Sarajevo uh, and I saw various parts of its um, it, it, its its path to independent statehood. But I wasn't there when it actually became independent and I haven't been back. Uh, I'm glad I'm going back in uh, next month. But when I go back, will I notice anything different? Oh, I think probably you'll notice a lot of changes. I mean, in some ways, I'm very jealous of people who were in Kosovo before the war or in the war or immediately afterwards who understand a little bit of that part of the country's development it's a bit like when you're in love with somebody and you want to know what they were like when they were a kid or because I feel like I've missed out on a big bit of of Kosovo's uh, development obviously not the most pleasant bit but still a bit that's probably important for understanding how it is today but I only arrived in Kosovo in 2006 and even I can see changes between then and now and I'm sure somebody who knew it from the war or post-war period would see even more changes. Well we'll get on to some of the things that you touch on in your in your book which uh, as I said I've, I found very 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 charming and thoroughly enjoyable to read and, and quite eye-opening in some areas but first of all let's talk about you uh, who you are where you come from and how you actually ended up in Kosovo keeping bees and then writing this book. Um, Well, I was a primary school teacher and um, working in primary education as a consultant. Um, So that's how I met my first Kosovar, working in Hackney. Uh, I was the deputy head teacher in a primary school in 1999 when there was the influx of refugees from Kosovo. And so I had a lovely family who, in fact, I'm still in touch with and who came to my book launch in in London, which was a real treat to see them uh, seven years years on or yeah however many years on 10 years on it was um and that's what I was doing when everybody else was uh, liaising with NATO and doing things that helped Kosovo to um become under UN supervision and then ultimately to become independent so I didn't have any knowledge of Kosovo in 99 apart from what everyone knew from their tv screens and the refugees who were coming to London um and uh, it was because my partner rob was involved at that point he was working with the ministry of defense and he was very involved in the the nato campaign from london 
uh, and he continued being a Balkan specialist. And so when in Kosovo, the prime minister, uh, a newly appointed prime minister, uh, said that he wanted a British advisor, it was Rob who the British government rang up literally one day and said, the Kosovo government, the new prime minister wants an advisor and we think it's you. Um, and Rob came home and said, what do you reckon? And it sounded like a great adventure. I think we were both ready for an adventure of some kind. And so within 10 days, our house was packed up. And 10 days after that, I was in this strange country that I knew nothing of, although Rob knew plenty about it. It had always just been his hobby, really, and not something that I had any expertise or certainly no knowledge of language or history or culture. So I arrived a bit like the reader arrives, you know, right in the middle. And that's mm -hmm. probably not a bad way to get to know a country rather than a, a long, slow courtship. Yes, you're, you're thrown into it and you turn up there. Um, and a lot of it is a lot of the early part of the book. It's you're thrown into it and you're, you're trying to find your feet and trying to do what a lot of people have to do. And, and that is find their feet as a partner of a husband or a wife who suddenly ended up in a, in a different country. And I know going back to my own parents, my, my father, when I was two years old, took me and my brother and my, my mum to uh, live in Kenya because he's a doctor. And, oh. uh, and I, I'm sure that my mum went through something similar. Um, but tell, tell us how that part of it all worked for you, because this leads directly to the, to the big theme of the book, which is the beekeeping. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very strange experience for me. I mean, I'd never been partner of before. Um, we'd always just had our own careers and our own individual identities and lives in, in London. And so it was the first time that I was being introduced everywhere as Rob's partner and first time that my access to the country, to some quite basic things like healthcare and uh, being able to get salt and vinegar crisps at the naffy that was all done only if i could prove that i was rob's partner and mm. um, so that was quite hard as a independent woman to yeah, come well, to terms with so, sorry for interrupting what time of the year was it um we arrived in may um, okay jolly cold still <laughs> like oh, i'd assumed okay. i was going down to southern europe it would be lovely and warm but i remember the first week when i only had what we our um luggage hadn't arrived and so I, all i had was like thin tops that i thought would be quite appropriate for southern europe in may but it turned out that it can be really quite cold here until uh, they say that the climate in kosovo is a battle between the siberian and the mediterranean and i think at that point the, the siberian was winning and then the mediterranean won and we had this glorious hot summer which lasted much longer than it does in england absolutely well well from my own experience i would have thought that if you turned up in uh, october november and had the whole of the six months or so of siberia winning it might not have been yes. quite a pleasant uh, quite as pleasant so uh, you're trying to find your feet and yes. you uh, and and then what happens well um i suppose i'd just begun to um start making a few friends and understanding a little bit of on my own terms of what Kosovo was like but it was really my first birthday in Kosovo which was the turning point for me because um for my birthday Rob bought me uh, Rob my partner bought me a beehive with bees in it um and had made an arrangement for me to be able to learn uh, beekeeping from an experienced farmer just outside Pristina where my hive could stay and so suddenly, from having no particular role, I mean, I had found little bits of English teaching work and things, but nothing that was really giving me an identity in Kosovo. I suddenly literally owned a little bit of Kosovo, a very small bit, um, and had uh, this particular interest 
and it was a way for me to meet people I would never have met and to start to understand a side of Kosovo that I would never have have got an access to before. So I was in the country as opposed to the city. I was with people who didn't speak English, people who didn't have any contact with international organisations, whereas up till that point, all the people I had met had by definition been people who were working with international agencies and therefore spoke English and therefore were in Pristina and were kind of mediated a little bit um for me and I felt like I got in touch with a uh, a more I suppose a part of Kosovo longer heritage and um, once I got in touch with people in the countryside and so it was a, a wonderful awakening and a wonderful way to experience the country and I've always said since then that if I was ever to move to another country I would go straight for its beekeepers as my way in because I think they're a very good starting point to understand any culture and they're always very friendly and welcoming. So yeah, it's a good way to begin. I I, I think that there is a, certainly a, a divide that you can pick up in the book and it's almost like a, a door is being opened because you start off as what's commonly known as an international uh, and there's a very much a divide between the public and private life of a place like Kosovo where a lot of things that people have experienced and a lot of ways of, of doing things, especially in a country where there are these strong historic memories, for instance, of uh, uh, 1999 and also um, life under uh, within Yugoslavia that that it's very difficult to understand and access if people still see you as an outsider, which, of course, most internationals are when they get there, but then they remain. And you cross mm. that divide. Well, I, I think that's a, a compliment. I would like to think I cross that divide. I'm sure there are some things that I probably won't ever um, understand and probably I'm quite lucky not to because you probably would have to have the rather horrendous experiences that many people in Kosovo have had to be able to fully understand some of that history. But yeah, it did feel like it was a, a significant way in to understanding people and and that experience. And I suppose um, to understanding even beyond Kosovo, that, that experience of war or of being a refugee or of poverty, those are things that are actually a lot more common than one might realise if one sits in Islington for all of one's adult life, which is what I'd done up till that point. So I felt like it was a way of understanding some quite fundamental things about human beings as well as understanding Kosovo. You didn't have what a lot of Kosovos seem to have, and that is the real connection to the life uh, to to the land. Uh, you say that you'd lived your life in Islington, which is a, a rather decent part of North London, but it's certainly <laughs> a long way from uh, from the countryside of Kosovo. And in, in in your book, you have this connection to the land coming through all the way. Uh, even Agim Cheku, who was the prime minister that Rob was working for, he himself has this real deep-seated uh, connection to, to the countryside and to the traditions of that. And that, that comes through strongly in your book. Yeah, and I think um, the internationals, as, as you say, that's what people call them in, in Kosovo, um, are probably the, the worst people who to understand the kinds of issues that there are in a place like Kosovo, where the land is what is contested. Um, and I've come across so many times um, people or families who are are that their main um, disappointment and worry and concern is about the fact that their land is now being lived in by somebody from another ethnicity or another family or the wrong people or they've been moved off their land and if you have actually moved around all your life from one Islington flat to another or in fact in my childhood I was a, a forces daughter so I grew up 
in moving every three years. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a, an understanding of why it matters to have one particular acre as opposed to any other particular acre. Um, and most internationals are like that because they are the people who are with the United Nations missions or with international with international aid or they're in embassies. Um, there are, of course, lots of people in Britain who have that understanding of what it's like to to be attached to a piece of land but they are attached to that piece of land and they're not coming out to Kosovo so um, there is that that's I think part of the divide between the international community in Kosovo and the local people and yes it was a funny kind of apprenticeship for me to suddenly be learning some of those rhythms by having my beehive. Why beekeeping? I mean you've said that you would also look for the beekeepers in any other country that you might turn up in but uh, what is it about beekeeping that's so special? I think you get a very immediate return for your uh, labour in beekeeping. I mean, you know, honey is delicious. Um, And the idea of having something where you get, you're able to have 30 kilos of honey just for popping over and having a look at how the bees are doing every so often. That's a a wonderful draw. Um, But also bees, I mean, the first time I got really interested in bees, um, long before I was bought my beehive was uh, seeing the observation hive that there is at the Horniman Museum in um, uh, South London. And so that's a hive with a kind of perspex sheet um, as one of the sides. So you can stand inside and watch the bees coming and going and making honey and bringing in pollen and feeding their larvae and doing all the things that bees do and doing their waggle dance, which is how they communicate with each other where the best uh, nectar is. And, you can just stand and watch that and it's better than any television program. And I would just stand for hours watching this observation hive in the Horniman. And so um, beekeeping does give you access to a whole other world of of this amazing um, organism that has a a mind that's greater than any one of its um, participants. And that in itself is, is mind blowing and exciting. I loved some of the details that you uh, you threw up during the course of uh, of the book about, uh, for instance, the smoke um, is to dull the, the the sense that are being given off by certain bees who sense that there's a, a an alien presence. So, in other words, it's not just to confuse them; it's to stop these little chemical signals being sent between the, uh, each other when you approach a hive as a beekeeper. Little things like that, that I, I found fascinating. Yeah, they are just a really extraordinary um, creature and they have all kinds of very sophisticated means of communication and the ways that the whole hive is regulated um, by the queen who gives off certain chemicals to regulate honey production or to regulate egg production. Or So she is um, in charge of the, the whole hive um, and I mean it's, hives have been used as political metaphors throughout <laughs> the ages but you can't help but sort of start to think about political metaphors when you see the way that this community organizes itself i mean i'm not sure i see it as a particularly benevolent community because people um if people were to be kept in the same way that the same kind of thrall that bees are kept to their queen they're not having much chance for making their own decisions which is something i value quite highly as a human being but um as a bee it's uh, a part of a fascinating colony Mm, absolutely. The other um, thing that this allowed you to get access to in terms of, uh, you know, finding a little bit more about Kosovo and the way it ticked, or at least the Kosovo Albanians, 
uh, was uh, food and hospitality. And a lot of these traditions, as you, can, as you can imagine, as one would imagine, because of this connection to the land and to history and to, to uh, the ways that things have been handed down generation after generation, uh, was very strong. Yeah, and I think um, I, I valued that. Um, I, I grew to value that more than I than I would have done before I came to Kosovo. So again, I think if I were to find myself in a new country now, I would find not only its beekeepers, but some way into its kitchens. Because when you're standing cooking with somebody, whether that's learning from them or teaching them or preparing a meal together that you're going to eat together, it uh, frees up conversation and creates a kind of intimacy that you don't get if you're just sitting in a cafe having a cup of coffee together and um before i started keeping my bees the 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 cafe mode of communication was my main way of of, uh talking to people in kosovo and actually in itself very civilized but you don't uh, get so easily below the surface of things as when you're standing there getting a bit steamy and you know throwing sharp instruments around the place and um dealing with milk and basic human needs i think that's a very um elemental kind of way to talk about elemental things and some of my most profound conversations with particularly women of course in kosovo came in their kitchens and i really valued those those times in a way that i probably haven't valued those conversations with other women before coming to kosovo uh, i i wanted to ask you a little bit more about uh, women but first i just wanted to to mention for any uh, listeners that the uh, one of the best things about the book is that each chapter seems punctuated or, or ended by a little box with uh, a particular recipe that, that that's thrown up. Usually, uh, it seems involving yogurt, milk, and honey. So, it, really quite delicious. Um, but on the question of women, um, one thing that most people who come into contact with Albania or Kosovo come to learn about the place is that there is a that there's a kind of code a, a kind of law that's enshrined in Albanian culture called the kanun uh, i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right you can you can put me that uh, sounded put, beautiful yes <laughs> kanun okay um and one of the one of the quotes that you have from that when you're explaining it is um woman is a sack to be hard used and one of the things I found most interesting in the book and quite heartwarming was the was the way that you actually found a way to communicate to what what seems as though it was still a fairly marginalized part of the population, the women. Yeah, I, I think I say in the book that I um, had always I'd never been a particular fan of of women only things. And I although I've got plenty of women friends, I don't necessarily seek out women only company. And it was a. a dynamic that I suppose I only really discovered when I was in Kosovo, partly because groups naturally, uh, more naturally broke into gender segregated groups, um, actually amongst the international community as much as amongst the uh, local community, because the internationals were largely men who had come out to work and their wives or their trailing spouses, as they call them. Um, although, of course, sometimes they were women who'd come out to work with their trailing spouses. So I found myself more within the company of international women but also when i was in a uh, albanian house very much um separated by by gender and uh, yeah i i'm still um i mean i i think it's important to remember that kosovo has got a woman president which is um more than the united states has managed yet um and kosovo has got plenty of women politicians and very dynamic businesswomen and you know there are women in public life and uh, so i don't want to give the impression that it's an entirely cloistered um experience being a woman in kosovo 
However, I think most of those women um, in public life are, are doing two jobs at once. They are also having to keep their houses to an extraordinary level of spotlessness um, mm. and probably do all the cooking and the cleaning um, and the childcare. And there's enormous pressure, far more than there is even in the UK, about um, having children and having plenty of them and a career not being any reason not to do that. Um, so I think even those women have a hard time. And then the women in the villages, and there is an enormous difference between um, city and village in Kosovo life. Um, the women in the villages have, you know, a, a really hard life of physical labour um, as well as, you know, quite leaving aside their human rights and access to, to decision making or choices about their own lives. And so there were lots of things that I learned to appreciate about the, the chances that I'd had that I probably hadn't properly appreciated before. And the uh, the, the women in the countryside in particular, um, you suggest that quite a few of them don't get the education, they don't get the, uh, ov obviously, the respect that their, that their brothers get and that um, there are various traditions that, uh, that, that are invoked when, when couples have ma uh, female children and they're trying to get male children. You were talking at one point about how they sometimes give, the, uh, give a, a female child a, a fairly ghastly name in the hope that fate won't uh, risk uh, giving the couple another, uh, another female child. That's right. Yeah, no, there's horrible names like ugly and scarecrow um, or you can... Uh, so, so, so you would actually call your daughter something like Scarecrow? Yeah, exactly. You literally would do that? Yes. Wow. Okay, um, sorry or, for interrupting. No, well, I'm more co commonly um, the name Shkurta, which means short, um, which doesn't mean short in stature, but it means may the line of girls be short. Okay. So you quite a lot of Shkurtas, and that means they will always be um, the youngest girl or they will be one of a line of uh, of girls and in the hope that there will be a boy that comes after them and yeah I find all of that very difficult and that is still very much a part of the the, the idiom of Kosovan parenting this one desperately wanting a boy mm. um, uh, but what about the uh, if, if if you're a, a woman and you're fairly well educated and I met quite a few very well educated uh, women in uh, Pristina, uh, what are your chances of finding a good job? Because one of the perpetual problems in the Balkans, let alone just in Kosovo, is is, is the economy. Yeah, I mean, the economy is in a terrible state and I don't know whether anybody's thinking very thoughtfully about what can be done about that. Um, I mean, Kosovo traditionally in the in Yugoslav times, um, there was employment in all kinds of state-owned enterprises, and that included quite a lot of factories. So there's a, some tendency to think that, you know, it's only a proper job if it's a factory and, and a desire that some more factories could be opened in Kosovo. And I'm not sure that really in 2011, that's an answer to anything, opening factories, because that's probably never going to be competitive with the kinds of uh, world players that there are. Um, and there's still enormous problems of nepotism or uh, familiarism, as they call it, like uh, pr uh, promoting your family over other people, which means that you, it's very difficult for people or, or perhaps just that people believe it's very difficult to get a job unless you know somebody who is in the hiring process and actually that belief that that belief that that's the case is as corrosive as as if it were actually the case I, I don't have the facts about the extent to which it is true but 
it means that people have a kind of fatalism about getting a job. It's not worth even competing if you're from the wrong political party or you're from the wrong region or you don't know the director or you've not got them in your family. And so that means, of course, that it's not you'd hope that um, a place with very low employment, very high unemployment would have um, the very best people always chosen for the job. Um, that is often one of the um, things that goes along with uh, economic recessions is that you do get a high quality of people in the jobs that are available. And that isn't working like that in Kosovo. And, and that's an enormous shame. Right. Um, I, having said that, I think that Kosovars are very... Um, entrepreneurial in instinctively and they are very it is a very young country i think it's 60 percent of the population is under 30 um and so there is a lot of energy and enthusiasm that if only it could be channeled in the right places i think kosovo could become um a very exciting place to work and an exciting place to invest in a in a young workforce who are very pro-european and um open to those ways of working Mm. In my experience, and certainly with talking to quite a few Kosovars when I was down there, and I think the, the latest I was there was early 2007, so quite a, quite a time ago, uh, there was a sense that um, Kosovo-Albanians had always had to rely upon themselves because they could just never trust the state when they were part of Yugoslavia. And that's one of the reasons why there is this entrepreneurial spirit. At least that's one of the, the reasons that was, uh, that was given at the time. Um, and perhaps this is a... This, this is a point in the interview when we can step back and give a little bit more of the, the context about Kosovo because its story is quite a, it's, it's quite a difficult one and quite a tragic one. Uh, there's no need to really go too far back in the past, but it was part of Yugoslavia, which of course did split up in, um, in the mid-90s, early mid-90s. Um, a lot of the countries that, that, that came out of that had been, I believe, full republics within Yugoslavia, such as Bosnia, such as Slovenia, such as Macedonia, and such as Serbia, Croatia, etc. But Kosovo had always been part of, uh, of, of Serbia itself, and it had been a kind of autonomous pro province of that. Uh, did you look much into the history of the place? Um, well, I sort of didn't have time. <laughs> because <laughs> I, had, I had 10 days to pack the house up, and then 10 days after that, uh, all my books had gone. <laughs> so um, I... I, I wish I had known more when I arrived but actually probably it was a um, a healthy way to see it to learn about a place was to um, visit it and then be reading about it at the same time rather than to arrive with all kinds of preconceptions mm. from the history but certainly I've been on a major catch-up process since then um, to understand a bit about the the history the, as you say the more recent history rather than the the long ago times but I'm actually um, writing another book I'm halfway through writing a book about Edith Durham who was a British woman who travelled to Kosovo and Albania and is an Albanian heroine for the work that she did in those countries in 1902 and 1908 she was in in Kosovo and Albania That's and right. so I've been learning a little bit about the history from a century ago to, to understand something of the context that she was riding around in and the kinds of experiences she had but yes, you have to understand the more recent history too. And that you best get by talking to people rather than from books because books are, because it is such recent history, there still isn't an agreed narrative. And so books are as likely to be biased and incorrect as people's memories. So I'd, I think I'd rather get the information from people's memories and then hold, uh, take everything with a pinch of salt. Um, and I'm slowly 
building up a mosaic, having talked to Serbs, having talked to Albanians, having talked to international observers. Um, I think I'm piecing together what it must have been like in Tito's time in the 90s when um, Milosevic was on the rise and Albanians were being expelled from their jobs and schools and all the rest of it. And then a little bit of what it was like in the war and then the immediate post-war reconstruction which i think was as i was saying earlier very different from what kosovo is like now um can you take us briefly through your understanding now of of what happened in 1999 and the you know what happened afterwards you know the 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 un coming in and and the protectorate well it was i mean it's become very important in the last few months because of the parallels that it it was always important for its parallels in Iraq and then it's become important for its parallels in Libya recently but that was the first time in March 1999 when NATO actually intervened as a um, a joint force in another country and NATO started its airstrikes on Serbia in order to uh, get Milosevic's forces to withdraw from Kosovo. Um, And that went on much longer than anyone had expected, went on for about 100 days. Mm -hmm. Um, And during that time, um, partly because of what NATO was doing, uh, the Serbian forces, and by that I mean police and army and paramilitaries, started forcing Albanians from their homes, I mean, turning up at homes and at gunpoint moving people out on onto uh, trains in large part in Pristina or just telling them to to disappear into the mountains which is where many people including the beekeeper that I was apprenticed to uh, spent some cold and scared days before they escaped to um, friends over the border uh, so that was that's the experience of Albanians from Kosovo from Kosovo Mm-hmm. Um, during the period from March to June in 99 was um, either being forced out or escaping before they were forced um, over the borders into Albania or into Macedonia, where in large part they were kept in huge refugee camps, which were grim in themselves, or they were in some cases looked after by local Albanians in many cases. Um, and of course, many came to other countries, and that's how we have such a a large population of Kosovar Albanians in the UK, but also in Sweden and Switzerland and Germany and all over the, the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in um, June 99, um, the United Nations passed Resolution 1244, which um, uh, arranged for Kosovo to be under the protection of the UN and for Serbian forces to withdraw. And the UN took over the running of all of the country's um, institutions, the government and all the ministries and local at local level, um, with the aim of slowly returning that to the people of Kosovo um, under terms which have been renegotiated and disputed ever since. But um, they certainly took a lot longer than anybody expected. So uh, the UN was managing Kosovo from June to uh, 1999. And it wasn't until uh, February 2008 that Kosovo got a, a final status as the Albanians of Kosovo would see it, which is independent. And the Serbs of Kosovo would see that there still hasn't been that final, final status. They consider Kosovo still under UN administration um, and they don't uh, acknowledge the Pristina government. They only acknowledge the UN, who are still here, but in much, much smaller numbers than they were before Kosovo proclaimed independence. So it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting case study of what does it take to be a country? We've had a there's a country that has 
proclaimed themselves independent have been acknowledged by, I think at the moment it's uh, 85 countries around the world have uh, recognised that independence, including the majority, but not all of the EU, um, and including lots of big and important countries like America who led the way. But um, if you haven't got everyone in the world, most importantly, Serbia and therefore Russia, for example, and China acknowledging that independence, then there are some things that you don't have as a country. So you don't have a seat on the United Nations. Um, but you also don't have membership of the um, you, you can't have representation at the Olympics, for example. Um, there was all sorts of negotiations that had to happen to get Kosovo an international dialing code or an international airport code or lots of little things that we as a country with quite neatly defined borders in, in, in the main, because we've got a coastline, don't really think about what mm. does it mean to be a country. And so Kosovo is still struggling with that and has been for three years since independence and probably will do for a while. Am I right in remembering that the Kosovo dialing code was the same as that for Monaco? It was basically borrowed. Yeah, so they that's right. It's yeah. A deal struck with Monaco, and then recently last year, a new operator started, which has a Slovenian dialing code. So you either have to dial through Monaco or through Slovenia. But yeah, close to the home. Too much for Kosovo identity to have to do that. Um, well, uh, that brings us quite up to date with a lot of the history. But of course, this, this this then begs further questions about the kind of ethnic mix that lies behind some of these problems. Kosovo, uh, the, the routine way of describing it, it, although it's not exact because there are other groups as well, is that it's around 90% ethnic Albanian, 10% Serb. But of course, the Serbs will then say, and this is the Serbs in the rest of Serbia as well, will point out that Kosovo has always been a historic, it, it, in essence, it's been the, the historic um, centre of Serb identity, and that complicates things further. Um, what evidence is there that, that you can see in places near Pristina, like Gracenica, or, or up uh, towards the, uh, the, the the divided city of uh, Mitrovica in the north, uh, that these um, sort of divisions are persisting? I think the, the divided city of Mitrovica is very different from the other Serbian communities that are in the south of Kosovo. Um, in the north and in the, the north of the river Ibar, which uh, divides Mitrovica from its Serbian, ethnically Serbian north from its ethnically Albanian south, um, there there is still genuinely disputed daily, um, well, in the last few months, extremely disputed, but for things like schools and hospitals and uh, law courts. Um, whereas in the rest of Kosovo, you have a slow and not at all universal, but growing um, acceptance of life in a multi-ethnic Kosovo. Um, and you have uh, Pristina-led municipal uh, or Pristina government-led municipal um, offices and schools in some cases. And um, certainly if you go to the market in Kamenica, for example, you will hear Serbs and Albanians with their stalls absolutely alongside each other talking in a mixture of languages. And whilst that doesn't mean everybody loves each other, it means that they're able to um, have economic coexistence, which is you know, a, an important prerequisite for eventually loving one another. Um, so I think the, those are very different scenarios. The, the North is still extremely contested territory. Um, and the rest of the country has some of the same, you know, we've got to be honest, it's got some of the same ethnic tensions that there are in countries around the world, including our own. And having worked in, in a London for all of my 
time as a teacher you know I know that we've not really got a, a recipe yet ourselves for how communities that have different religions and have different traditions and see themselves as other how they can rub along together and sometimes those things flare up um, when they flare up in England everyone says gosh that's such a surprise given how calm England is when they flare up in Kosovo people say you see that's what happens Kosovo is hopeless mm. <laughs> uh, I think it's about the paradigm that you have for a country um, but I do have Serbian friends from um, near Pristina who live near Pristina I, I learned Serbian for a year with a Serbian teacher outside Pristina and I worked on a couple of projects which um, were uh, with uh, and international NGOs, which were about um, bilingual education. So Serbian and Albanian kindergartens, for example, where kids would be learning in their mother tongue, but also have a teacher speaking the other language. And I think it's those sorts of small, gentle initiatives that are probably going to make the difference in the end. Um, and the political process will work itself out. Mm. Um, and, I, and I do have to say, you um, you were commenting, you were giving the uh, the numerical breakdown. And I think normally people say that, as you say, it's 90% Albanian and then it's 8% Serbian and the rest is largely Roma and Ashkali and Egyptian, which is an important distinction because they're so different from Serbs and they have very different issues in Kosovo. And I'm working at the moment on a project um, with uh, Roma and Ashkali education. And the fact that many of them are Albanian speaking makes them very different from the the Serbs. So then they're a different part of that remaining 10%. Absolutely. Very important. In fact, I remember that I was trying to research a story about the uh, the schools that were trying to um, educate primary school children in uh, not just Albanian and Serb, but also any other relevant languages. Um, right. Which, uh, yeah, Turkish and Roma. For yeah, it, it was a shame that I never got to do that, but it was always quite a long drive from Sarajevo to get down there. Um, oh, and you can do it. If you're coming in next month, you can come and see some of the schools now. Well, I'm flying down, so I've got to fit in with the timetable of the of the planes. And unfortunately, the getting there and back from London isn't the easiest anymore. But uh, what, one other thing I wanted to mention uh, in connection with the Serb community um, tallies exactly with what you're saying. I, I, one of the things I was there for in 2007 were the um, they were the Serb. Uh, yeah, it was the Serbian elections, I believe. Um, and you had Gracinica, uh which I'm probably pronouncing badly. Uh, it's so long since I've spoken any Serbian. Um, and you had a lot of people going along there. And of course, you just had Marty Artisari in town giving the, you know, the, his plans for what was going to happen. Um, but the one thing that was quite clear was that when you actually talk to a lot of the Serbians... And there was this this fantastic old gentleman with a walking stick and a very traditional hat and an enormous mustache. And what was very clear from from them was that there was much more of a sense of pragmatism than you often picked up if you just read the big headlines in the newspapers. And they were saying, well, as long as we can find a way to exist in this or or our children can find jobs, and if they get rid of, you know, fairly common things like corruption and so on, then yes, I think that this could be the country that, that um, you know, an Albanian-dominated independent Kosovo could work for us, and and some of that surprised me somewhat, having just listened to, uh, as most people do, the main headlines. Yeah, and I think uh, it's possibly the case that those who weren't pragmatists are those who've left Kosovo, and there have been many Serbs who've left, and that is a shame that there there are people who feel that Kosovo is not a home for them anymore. But I think that those that who've been able to find that that compromise and who are prepared to work with 
their neighbours, who are people that, after all, on a personal level, they've known for all their life and generations. Um, there are ways that people are working together. And there are, um, unfortunately, the, the experience of service from Kosovo, if they go to Serbia to live, for example, go to Belgrade, is um, a far more miserable one than their experience living in Kosovo. They are treated very badly and given um, they're, they're given the same ethnic nickname that Serbs give for the Albanians in Kosovo, which is a pejorative term. And they and they don't, I, I've heard from lots of Serbs who have made that journey, either have bought their flat in Belgrade and go there occasionally, or who have tried out living there, that that isn't a solution. They're, they don't feel at home in Belgrade. Um, so they are, they, they've got a lot of people wanting to make a success of it for them in Kosovo. And that includes, of course, the international community, but also um, when it's being at its most biddable, um, the uh, Kosovan government wanting to prove that their, their Kosovo can be a place for a multi-ethnic population because it's in their interest to be able to demonstrate that for European membership and to um, keep these internationals who are all over the place happy. So I think that there are opportunities and that there are many young Serbs and families of Serbs in Kosovo who take those opportunities. And there aren't, um, there aren't people who are in fear of their lives in, in Kosovo anymore. It, it is a safe place. It doesn't mean it's a comfortable place for everybody. And I, I have no idea what the experience must be like to be a Serb coming into an Albanian dominated area, for example. But it, it's not a place that you're going to be um, afraid that you'll be killed anymore. Can I uh, just jump? We're getting towards the end of, of, of the interview, and I just wanted to jump quickly. Uh, and it, it almost comes off all of this historical stuff and social stuff and, and obviously memories of violence that we're talking about. But uh, the, the title of the book, Travels in Blood and Honey, about two-thirds of the way into the book, you reveal why you've used that title, and I found this fascinating. Can you um, yeah. spell that out? Yeah, it's a, a great story. I think it's probably only a story, but it it does work uh, etymologically. Um, the story goes that um, when the Turks first came to the Balkans, they saw this wonderful fertile land, which it is wonderful fertile land, and realised that it would be a land of honey. And Bal in Turkish means honey. That is true. Um, and so they called it the land of Bal. Um, until they realised how hard they were going to have to fight and how repeatedly they were going to be fighting. Um, and that it was therefore also the land of blood. And the Turkish word for blood is can. So bal can in Turkish does mean honey blood. And it is therefore the land of blood and honey. And I suppose for me, I, when I first came to Kosovo, like most people, all I knew about it was that it was a land of blood. And the great revelation to me um, and the extremely pleasant revelation was that it was also a land of honey and I don't want to over honey it and ignore the, uh, the the violence which has made it the place that it is but I think there's been a lot of people who have over bloodied it and have ignored the fact that it's a place with a wonderful uh, rich culture with these enormously hospitable people uh, with all this delicious food and this beautiful countryside and I suppose my book is a little bit about traveling through through that as well as through the bloodied history.
Absolutely. And I think that you succeed. And this is getting towards the end of the, the interview, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. Normally, I'd, uh, at this point, I'd, I'd do something such as ask you what you're working on now. But of course, you've you've spoken about the book that you're writing on Edith uh, Durham, and I look forward to reading that as well. So instead, what about doing something different? Um, one of the, the, the um, recipes that you give, not so much a recipe, almost a tradition uh, that you spell out, that I found particularly interesting, not particularly palatable, was the Albanian breakfast where you swallow honey first to attract all the microbes in your gut and then you wash it down with a good shot of raki, the local, uh, the local alcohol, and that kills all of, the, um, all of the gut microbes. I found that a fascinating little insight. Are there any uh, little traditions or, or recipes or whatever that, 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 that will stay with you no matter where you go? I think probably the um, recipe for lokuma, which um, is not Turkish delight, even though it sounds very like the word for Turkish delight. And people think that's might be what it is. It's entirely different from Turkish delight. It's a bit like um, a sort of savoury donut or something. It's a deep fried mm. puff. Um, and that's it's something that um, I've never the like of which I've never tasted before. But it's not particularly difficult to make. And traditionally, it's something you'd have um, on a Sunday morning breakfast, and it is indeed a brilliant hangover cure. Um, and it's also the sort of thing that's made um, it, traditionally for when a baby's born, particularly I have to say a boy baby. Going back to our <laughs> conversation before, um, or for wedding guests, um, on, if wedding guests stop off on their way from bringing back the bride they stop at your house then you it's something you can whip up quite quickly at an occasion like a, a sudden birth or a sudden dropping in guest um and there's a certain drama to making it because you um uh, because of the way these balls puff up and when you fry them and yet you don't have to have particularly sophisticated ingredients for it uh, and you can have it with lashings of honey or nutella or um yogurt with garlic in it which is what really works for the hangover and so that's something that i do quite often make just per chef as the albanians say like for fun um and it's an easy recipe that uh, i like making particularly if we've got guests staying for a weekend because it's a, a special thing to do on a sunday morning you're making me feel hungry especially at this time of night so <laughs> i thank you so much uh, for for everything elizabeth uh thank you for your book which I, I thoroughly enjoyed and thoroughly recommend to everybody and uh thank you for your time this evening Oh, well, thanks very much. And it's been nice talking to you. And that was my interview with Elizabeth Gowing, the author of Travels in Blood and Honey, Becoming a Beekeeper in Kosovo. There are plenty more interviews with authors on Europe and many other subjects on our website, newbooksnetwork.com. This is Nicholas Walton from New Books in European Studies, wishing you a good day from here in London. <laughs>